to Subtext and Discourse, the podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney. Well, it's been a while since the last episode went online, and that's largely due to the fact that I've recently become a parent. Our firstborn arrived in the thick of the Berlin winter, and it's been a lot of adjusting since then. I won't go into too much detail here, however, if you are interested, my wife and I appeared on the other podcast that I produce, The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall, where we talk about our journey and experiences of the first few weeks of parenthood. At the beginning of May, I caught up with old friend and fellow gallerist Pierre-André Podbielski. Some of you might remember his space in Berlin, which was located at Koppenplatz between Linienstrasse and Augustrasse in Berlin-Mitte, though a few years ago he relocated back to Milan, where he has continued to run the gallery. From today, Thursday the 17th of June, until Sunday the 20th of June, you can find him at the fair, spelt P-H-A-I-R, in Turin, presenting the work of Marina Caneva, Francesca Cadastini, and Giulia Palato. Please don't forget to follow the Subtext and Discourse podcast, which is available on your preferred listening platform. However, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Pierre-André Podbilski. I was trying to think back when we first met, and I guess it would have been around 2013 or 14 after I opened my space in Mitter, and you were already in Berlin. You opened Podbilski Contemporary in 2011, is that 2011 right? 2011 in January, yeah. Were you already living in Berlin or you moved to no, open up your space? I came, we opened. I wasn't really meant to live in Berlin. I was meant to come and commute. And I actually had a partner who was meant to run the gallery. And then after six months, she quit. So I found myself having to move to Berlin in a way and take full responsibility. It was pretty rough. The initial period was very rough, actually. So how did you decide, I'm going to open a gallery in Berlin? Because you're not from Germany, are you? No, my father was German originally before the war. He was forced to emigrate in a way by the British to Australia. He was sent there as an enemy alien, having fled Germany to England. So he spent all the war years or most of the war years in Australia in an internment camp. Oh, really? So that's where he met my mother, because she also had fled Europe at the time. So I had German origins and Polish origins, of course, but I had little connections to Berlin. If not that as a gallerist in Milan, we used to go and visit some artists based in Berlin. But what the trigger was that as an architect, I bumped into Koppenplatz, saw this building, scaffolding, checked with the real estate agency. I was curious as to prices and the deal was so extraordinary. And that time I had that kind of money and I just put an option on it, you know, compared to European prices and to Milan prices. And the big deal was that you would pay step by step and only within the deadline of a year and a half or two, you'd pay the final installment and you were free to adjust it to your requirements. Oh, so it was nice. a bit of a dream, basically, to imagine a gallery space, a bit of an apartment space. The idea slowly dawned on me that Berlin Arts, I was very frustrated with my Milan experience as a gallerist, nothing much was going to happen. So I took the opportunity to sort of re-question my professional experience. And photography was always very fascinating to me, but I'd never dealt with it with the gallery in Milan. It seemed like another world when in fact it really belongs to the art world. So in a way also related to this at that time partner who was finishing her PhD at Leeds University and very much exposed on the Middle East as a case study, not so much as a professional experience, but as the matter of a study. We started doing research on Middle Eastern artists and photography. And around that, we built a concept. And that's what got us started. We had an opening show with very prominent names of artists having worked in that area. 
The essay was by Griselda Pollock, who at the time was a prominent university teacher focusing on the Middle East. And that was, you know, a complete utopia to start a gallery out of scratch, opening a company, having no contacts whatsoever. But we had that first initial show. And then slowly things came into flow. A few other artists came into the picture and uh, we sort of build a, a name for ourselves. But it took time. It wasn't, a, in Italy, you say it's not a passeggiata. It wasn't like walking along the beach. It was really a, oh, very demanding. <laughs> and the day we opened in January, it was snowing. There was mud in the streets. It was quite extraordinary in retrospect, you know, thinking back. Well, I think 2011, I remember, I don't know if it was the winter before that one, but Whenever I compare any winter, I always think back to that period. Everything's mild compared to, <laughs> that, to that time. When you cope with Berlin and that kind of experience, I think you're ready to cope with quite a lot in life. And also, basically, having studied in France, but being Italian and my family's Italian, you know, adjusting to Italian way of life, Berlin and Germany is another ball game, for the better and for the worse. But for the better, it was such a professional challenge, you know, the seriousness, the reliability, the way you hire people, the way you relate to your artists, everything was straightforward and serious and efficient. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the challenge, of course. At the back of mind, also the language was a challenge. I spoke oh, German, yeah. but I'd never used German professionally. And slowly by needing to, and, uh, you know, I was 60 then, and mm -hmm. starting to be with young kids, the whole art scene like yourself, it was like a rebirth for me. Although I was stably living in Milan, my family and yeah. my children, but to start a scratch in such a different environment, it was really wonderful. So you said you were 60 when you opened the space in Berlin. Yeah. Wow. And uh, <laughs> wow, yeah. you mentioned that you were an architect, but how did you go from being an architect to being an art dealer to opening the space in Berlin? You already had some involvement yeah. with the art world or you were an art collector? or We were art collectors with my wife. And mm -hmm. uh, I think I told you I studied in Paris at the Beaux-Arts. The whole neighborhood of the Beaux-Arts in Paris was just galleries and museums. So I got that from a very young age. But then with my wife, we did start collecting junior collectors, small budgets, but we got an insight. We used to go to museums around Germany and New York, wherever. We went to Art Basel every year, mm -hmm. not in the flashy part of Art Basel, but we did have a thing about trying to discover young artists. Yeah. It's all very small, very relative. But then it picked up and architecture having become what it was in Milan, administration, some corruption, difficulties in getting paid. It was becoming very heavy going. And Rubin, who was at the time a gallerist, quite an established mm -hmm. gallerist in Milan, kind of sensed that I was interested in putting a foot in that kind of world and offered me to come try it out. So for a year, I think a good year, every Friday afternoon and Saturday, I would devote to the gallery. The rest of the week, be a full-time architect. And slowly, you know, one thing took over the other. I had to take yeah. a decision. And I was glad to give up the architecture. It was a big risk to take, huh? But it was a challenge too. Economically, in the beginning, it was very little money. But then my father died. So there was a bit of money that allowed me to have that kind of freedom. And then in full flow, I, I became a full-time gallerist and then a partner to the gallery. Wow, okay. We started growing and we started doing fairs. And high point was Art Cologne. That was a big feature. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and then things didn't go so smoothly as always, you know, <laughs> cycles. But it certainly gave me a big, big exposure to how one works as an art dealer, how one installs a show. I was given freedom to work with the artists I was interested in, which were abstract, mostly artists. Abstract art compared to figurative art never quite managed to compete. 
in Milan, you know, it's people feel comfortable with figurative, uh, reassuring paintings, a bit less with abstract challenges. So my position was not strong enough to sort of insist and frustration started to grow. In the meantime, I mentioned my eldest daughter is a human rights lawyer, studied in London, worked for UNHCR, and through her and through her look into what's going on in the world affairs, I got really very uh, interested and frustrated and indignated about what was going on. So mm-hmm. photography was the one vehicle that allowed one to sort of talk a little bit at least and hopefully more about what was going on in the world affairs as opposed to just painting sculpture. So Mm -hmm. I took that on and I realized that a lot of prominent artists, one above all, Alfredo Jara, became a bit of a feature and a kind of dogma of what I was wanting to achieve. Have that kind of statement from these kind of artists that talk about what goes on in the world. Yeah, I always felt that actually with a lot of the work that you did present, it did have a bit of a political undertone to it and that you really wanted not just to show conceptual work, but really something that communicated what was happening in the world now and that we should be using art as a vehicle for maybe understanding the whole situation that we're living in and maybe be more empathetic and sympathetic towards it. Empathetic, start questioning, definitely. Through the lines, I think you can read that through the artists that I was showing. Of course, I can't survive with just very exposed political photography. Yeah. But, you know, we had Israeli artists, quite a few, some based in Israel, some based in Berlin, not just because they're Israeli, but because the issues they raise are extremely political. Mm-hmm. But I also had a very prominent Iranian artist, Shadi Gadirian. I had Sarkisian, who was a Syrian artist based in London. Francesco Yodice, who's a prominent, wonderful Italian photographer, also very much denouncing uh, global uh, issues throughout the world. And then some more, let's say, easy, just pleasing photography. But in the back of my mind, and I think I still try to keep to that uh, vision, there has to be some challenge as to you know, why you're just showing this. Yeah. I guess as a gallerist, and that would be how you select your artists. So that's what you ideally are looking for. There's a lot of meaning behind the kind of work that they're doing and their motivation for creating the work, really looking out at the global political situation. Definitely. And is it through the work that your daughter was doing that you picked that region? Or is it just because that's really a global hotspot? Definitely a global hotspot. Anything from, you know, ex-Yugoslavia to the Middle East, of course, was a feature in the, the newspapers and all the political debates. Huh? Not that in America, they're not just as intense and horrifying stories to be dealt with. But then it was also a question of logistics in choosing your artists. I mean, I had Israeli artists, and that's not an easy thing to deal with in terms of logistics. Iranian, even worse. But part of that utopia in the initial stage of the gallery, I would go for it and, you know, go also with the costs because then it also yeah. leads to extra costs. Now I've become a little more rational and a little more sensible, of course, <laughs> in, in, uh, in choosing and making certain choices. Did you travel to the regions? Did you go to Israel and to go to Iran and some other countries? to Israel, definitely, because it's a fascinating country, apart from any other consideration. And the museums are extraordinary. And the artists that I have been working, I still work with. In Iran, unfortunately, I always missed out on it. And I really feel sad now that you can hardly go there anymore. Yeah. It's horrifying. Just an anecdote. There's a very interesting artist from Iran. She's in Paris. She got some kind of a sponsorship. And because she's Iranian, she can't open a bank account in France. 
the law prohibits her from opening a bank account, which is really a horror story if you think of it. Really, you can't do anything. You can't get paid. You, you can't, can't get paid. You can't. No, it's just on the side, but it also just goes to show, you know, Iran full of incredibly interesting artists, photography, filmmakers. It's a civilization mm -hmm. and they have been completely cut out because of their politics. Yeah. So just to come back, Alfredo Jar, who is this wonderful uh, global artist, he was at the Venice Biennale. He's in the initial statement of our concept of the gallery, which yeah. you can see on our website. Because I think it's a nice mission statement that you have. I stick to it, and he's such a meaningful person. He, he did an incredible uh, reportage on Rwanda, one of the most heartbreaking and powerfully symbolic projects ever political on the survivors of this assault in the church in Rwanda. You can look it up. It's really heartbreaking. I've got the quote here. It may sound naive, but I think that for all its failings, the world of art and culture is still the only one where something like that can be done. The media can't do it anymore. They've become a vulgar business like any other. The world of culture, museums and universities is the last place where you are still free to dream of a better world. I'm glad to see it and I come back to it and I'm very proud of it. We started with that statement and it's still very meaningful, of course, at all levels. And it's true that in the meantime, also in international affairs, a lot of political work has been shown. It's not that I was, you know, a pioneer, but, you know, there's a lot of trash, of course. There always yeah. has been. There's a lot of social media, but there's also a lot of, you know, even reportage, which was a bit, you know, the magnum big names. Mm -hmm. We're always on the side of the art scene. They're coming to museum shows and see some of their work sold in galleries too. So it's happening. Yeah. Coming back to Berlin then. So 2011 is when you set the space up. 2018 is when you ultimately decided we're going to close and move back to Milan. In the time that you were in Berlin, how was the timeline or how was it? Because if I reflect on my own experience, I feel like we opened, if it was a wave happening at that time, we were just as it peaked and then it was sort of coming down a bit because the first gallery sure. weekend we had lots of sales. And for that to be our first year, we thought, oh, this must be what it's like all the time. And then, of course, it tapered off and tapered off and tapered off. And a few other galleries had closed before 2018. Obviously, it was sad to hear that you were deciding that Berlin, for me, I've kind of done my stint. How did you come to make the decision? To be very uh, realistic and honest with you, five years would have been the cycle, the normal deadline. After five years, you check your accounts, you check your energy level. Ironically, I think in 2016 or 17, Air Berlin folded, huh? which meant that there was no direct flights, which made life easier for me and reasonably mm -hmm. cheaper. And then no Air Berlin, nightmare. So you had to go to Milan Airport oh, yeah, miles away. That was not a crucial decision, but it was a bit of a metaphor. You know, if Air Berlin fails, wow. <laughs> but uh, in agreement with my wife, I said, okay, let's give it another two years. I was mm -hmm. in the middle of my family research, such a fascinating experience about my own family roots. I'd hired a family researcher and made me travel. You know, I went to Auschwitz. I went to see all sorts of places in Germany. And, and it grows on you, this German experience, which you must have experienced too, of course, mm -hmm. teaching. There's so much to learn and to find out. And, the, you know, after five years, you're beginning to get to know the curators, the CEO Berlin, mm -hmm. the Helmut Newton. Your artists begin to have more exposure, Loredana Nemes, among others, you remember? Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a frustration saying, okay, now I close just when I'm beginning to consolidate. Yeah. In terms of image and qualification in art fairs but as you suggested the money wasn't there that's for yeah. sure and although you know the whole hype that came up with startups the real estate pressure all these young flashy kids uh, mm -hmm. but they wouldn't come to the gallery yeah and what I always said and repeat compared to the Italian situation in Milan, you know, Milan is a very wealthy city. It's gone through mm -hmm. major crisis recently, but it was one of the wealthiest cities in Europe. 
And it's what I call the bourgeoisie, you know, sort of people, established family tradition, lawyers, accountants, people who can bank, and they're still here. And they're the ones that will buy, you know, at the end of the day, a wonderful photograph to put in the living room. Mm-hmm. And in a way, which is a bit frustrating to say, you know, when you sell in fairs, you've got no idea where the work ends up. When you yeah, sell yeah. in Milan and you more or less know who the people are you sell to, it ends up most of the time in the living room. So it's another world, but I had to accommodate to it and adjust to it. And of course, it's what keeps the gallery going at the end for everybody. Yeah. So how was the difference and like, how would you contrast it? Throughout the 2000s, you were working in a gallery in Milan and then let's say 2010 to close to 2020 in Berlin, but now the last sort of three or four years in Milan. How is it demographic-wise, collector-wise, between the two different locations? Yeah, I tried to come to terms with that because, of course, Milan has a big quantity of galleries and some very good galleries. Mm-hmm. It's not so Berlin mode that the whole neighborhood has its galleries and people will flow. There's no such thing as a gallery weekend. Mm-hmm. There's a good fair called Mia. We've been taking part in it for 10 years, and that has given us great opportunities to meet a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It would have been 10 years last year. So much, I would say, because it's a small city in a way compared to a capital like Berlin, a lot of it is also word to mouth. Somebody knows you, will refer you to somebody else. And since my gallery is not on the street, but it's in a courtyard, Mm -hmm. you really have to work that people come to you, which on one hand is a big plus because you don't have the whole pressure of people just coming in and out the whole time. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's not as dynamic as a street gallery would be. Yeah. You ask me how to compare. It's very difficult to compare because Berlin, you had the hype of the openings. Sure. Friends would occasionally bring me some collectors. But in terms of sales, I would say Milan is five times more successful in terms wow. of numbers. Yeah. You know, remember the show I had on the wall? The yeah, metaphor yeah. Of the wall. That was really nice. Yeah. Incredible show. I think I sold two, three works out of it. And I had big names and even the artists, you know, there's also this thing that artists live in their own little world and they don't relate to the social network of collectors. No, they don't. I'm not saying that in Milan, artists have a big flashy life. Of course not. But in Berlin, it was a bit of a ghetto life for all the artists. And I was relying always on them. You know, you must know people. You're not teenagers anymore. But that hardly ever happened. I hardly ever sold to collectors or friends of the artists. Yeah. To be very honest, Michael, you know, you've shared that experience. It was very difficult. Yeah, it is tough. And I think even through teaching as well, trying to get the artists to understand that you kind of have to be part of the system and the way that the art world works It is a lot about relationships and connections to people that you have. And if you're not engaging with the community, then it's going to be difficult for people to connect with your work, but even just to want to come and see you and want to be involved. And yeah, we had the similar experiences where the artists would turn up by themselves. Like I remember even saying, are you even going to bring your girlfriend or bring your friends? No, they don't want to come. It's like, if your friends don't want to see your show, (laughs) why is anybody (laughs) Don't remind me. I had all the guys drinking my wine outside, packed full. I met wonderful people. I can't say that they didn't meet some good people. You remember we had this experience with the Auswärtige Amt, the artists Mm -hmm. had their shows in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the rooftop. They had a kind of a scholarship that was highly qualified too. I did meet, of course, a few collectors. To be honest, I never did the, the statistics, but... You know, when we had access to these international fairs in Italy at Artissima or Mia, then we did London at some point. That's where we did so. Yeah. And also for the artists, it's frustrating. You do great shows, put money into it, they come, and then not that much happens. I don't want to sound a bit presumptuous, but how often have you been invited for dinner by, you know, an established Berlin family? It just doesn't happen. No. They take you out to a restaurant, but you never get to see the houses. 
And that was one of my frustrations too. At my age, you know, if you see somebody's house, you can relate to them. You can understand where their taste goes, what books they read. That's, that's the, 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 the structure of Berlin. Perhaps it'll change, you know, the new generation will perhaps, well, you will experience that. Mm-hmm. Um, hard to say. Yeah, no, it is definitely difficult. And I think it's the kind of nuance, I think, definitely within the art world and the art market, that affinity with different people and kind of getting that closeness. I think even sort of generationally, like you were saying, you were 60 when you had the gallery in Berlin. I think I was 33 or 34 when I opened the space. And it's people from your age bracket as well, the different expectations, but also your background, where you're from. And yeah, you've got to sort of see which parts that you fit into. But definitely, I think it's tough to kind of break into the Berlin. I think once, where did I go? There was one of the bigger galleries that I went to. I won't name them, but I went to one of the bigger spaces. And when I saw the clientele that was turning up there, I thought, wow, these people do exist in Berlin. They They just, you know. I had the same experience. Flashy dinner parties in the gallery, served dinner, a little speech here and there. Well, we, we know the names, you know, the three or four yeah. big players. <laughs> the artist was there. I was happy to be invited. And I realized, yeah, you know, my, my shortcoming, my mistake, if you like, but that was the only way up. It was that I wasn't really living there. My wife wasn't there with me. Yeah. So I was a single guy in Berlin. I could reach up to a certain point. And I'm not that much of a social guy anyhow in terms of career. I'd rather go to the Berlin Philharmonic than... <laughs> and Berlin, I love Berlin. It's been my love story, but you can't recognize a, a flashy millionaire from my hipster. No, you can't. It's really hard to tell. <laughs> yeah. so, unless you go to the <laughs> Berlin Fair, you know, but on a normal Berlin evening, even if you go to the opera, you go to concert hall. If you go to Milan to the Scala, you know, it's something. <laughs> if you go to Berlin in the Philharmonic last minute, <laughs> it's another world. Yeah, absolutely. You said a little bit before about art fairs. You do Mia and Turin, but then you also went to Photo London. And I think last year you went to Paris Photo. Like, how has it been doing the different fairs? To start with, I'm not saying it's an ego trip because that would be really stupid, but when you climb the ladder from zero, Mia was you know, my initial step. And then finally, after 10 years, you end up in Paris Photo. You say, wow, it means that I've been working solidly and solidly for my artists. In a way, it's, I wouldn't say it's a privilege because it costs a lot yeah. of money. But on the other hand, you know, you're, in Italy, I'm competing with perhaps another two or three galleries that would want to get there. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to get that recognition. Like when I've been invited to things or yeah. taken part in stuff, I think it's just having that external, mm-hmm. you're doing something really good because you're allowed to come and take part in this. Yeah. No, definitely. We did many mistakes, remember, from the Berlin days. But then some people do well, some people don't do too well. It's cyclical. You, you know, once you're in by photo, basically, you should be doing well. <laughs> <At least. laughs> That's, that should be the standard. But Berlin, there was a lot of energy put into fears. But since I moved to Milan, I reached another level, which meant basically five to six fairs a year. You know, if I talk about it now after a year of lockdown, it seems crazy. But we would start in Bologna, which is a major Italian art fair in January, and end up with Artissima in November. So basically, Italy, however chaotic it is, uh, has a fair in January, has Mia in March or May, has Artissima in November. So it's basically three successful art fairs in a year. And then you add to that photo London, Unseen, which is a fair in Amsterdam, which we'll do again this year, which is wonderful for young people. I really enjoy that one, yeah. Wow, what else? Well, that's already good enough. <laughs> yeah. So this year we've saved a lot of money and now we're beginning to apply for all the autumn fairs and that's going to be a big risk, big, big risk because nobody knows if people are going to be comfortable about traveling. A lot of Americans probably won't or might. So fairs, uh, as you suggest, to be honest also, Michael, because I'm 
you know, cosmopolitan. It's just that I'm not fully Italian. I'm not even Italian, but um, <laughs> I speak the languages. So I feel very much at home when I go to foreign countries. It gives you that extra adrenaline and it's a sense of challenge. And of course, if you go to London, you know people by now. If you go mm-hmm. to Paris, you know people. I, that's where I studied. So let's say perhaps because of my age too, I, I see the side benefits of also going to these places. You know, if you go to London, if you go to Paris, if you go to Amsterdam, wow. It's a lot of pressure, it's money, but it's also incredibly enriching. You meet new people, you see other artworks. And also, you know, I have three daughters, you'll see what it's like eventually. <laughs> you also do that unconsciously because you realize that your kids are aware of the effort you put into this. You know, one thing is being a banker. Okay, your father goes to the bank in the morning, comes back in the evening, he must have made a lot of money. Another thing is working with artists and for artists. And I, th- I thank you for giving me that opportunity to say these things, but it's also a mission, you know, when you have these young artists relying on you and thanking you for the opportunity you give them, it means a lot. Yeah. It really means a lot. And not many out there have that kind of relationship to their artists, you know, I think. Yeah. Um, ever since I came back to Milan, I've got a long waiting list of artists that want to show with us. Mm-hmm. No, I definitely think as well. And I suppose I appreciate people like yourself and others as well that they really care. And I think when I always hear the typically negative feedback about gallerists and art dealers, that they just have a certain very one-eyed view of it. Yeah. And then if I reflect on my peers and colleagues that are doing similar work, everybody's really emotionally and personally invested in how the artists are treated and how they feel about it. And yeah. they put a lot of their own kind of heart into it. I mean, there are a lot of easier ways to make a living than there are by opening a gallery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have to fight because of course the artists fight for their own rights too. I always have these funny discussions with my artists when it comes to sharing the cost. So I say, you know, I've got a gallery, I've got the fairs, I've got my staff moving things here back and forward. And they say, yeah, but I went to Myanmar or I went to <laughs> Indonesia and of course, they all had heavy costs themselves and take risks. I have one artist that goes to North African Muslim countries and say, you don't know how many times I was nearly you know, thrown stones at. <laughs> oh, so, gosh, yeah. yeah, when you have to put this into money terms, it's not easy to negotiate. Not always easy. Please. Yeah, I know it's difficult. Uh, how has the programming changed since you, I guess, returned home to Milan? Even yeah. reflecting on the initial experience with Ruben, your time in Berlin, having the experience of the fairs and then going back to Milan, I guess 20 years almost worth of experience, looking back and then thinking, okay, how are we going to start the next chapter? Did you take a different approach to it? It's uh, no, very, I don't know if the word in English exists, empirico. It's like you adjust to the situation as they come. Okay. So it's not like there's a long-term strategy. I'm not that kind of a you know, businessman. But opportunities do come up from one artist to another, one curator to another. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, because of the pandemic last year, we worked on two group shows to sort of diversify, but also to give more opportunities to discover new names. And one was a bit of my secret garden. I had this idea in Berlin, which I could never have done, of doing a show on nude photography. So I put this thing together with a few big names, some young names, and it opened doors to seeing works from artists that don't do nude photography, but have in the portfolio some nude photography. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful to watch. You can see it on the 3D art land I have on my website. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. I visited the gallery virtually yeah. before we spoke. It's really nice, the new space. And I suppose it's different just seeing the thumbnails, but then yeah. walking through the space, 
virtually you get a better sense of scale and you can kind of feel them in the room and stuff it looks really nice if you have the patience it's i mean artland is kind of a memory of what we've done show by show so that was one group show we did which did put me in touch with some new artists and some historical artists too black and white wonderful names and then the next show which i also had in mind because of the next fairs was a omaggio feature on italy which meant nearly all were Italian artists. So it was also a way of acknowledging and recognizing the Italian photographers that don't always have much exposure. So it's also a group show, which we ended a month ago. It lasted much longer than it was expected to. And it got quite a good resonance. And some of it came afterwards, actually. We did a lot of social media. That's what my assistant mostly did in the lockdown period. But then when people eventually came, they did fall for some of the work. You know, when you do eclectic stuff, you never know what's going to appeal, what's less going to appeal. But it gave a wonderful picture of the beauty of Italy, apart from anything else. <laughs> so it's not very conceptual. It was just very narrative, mostly beautiful works in Italy, black and white in color. And then eventually, because you're asking me, that was also part of the back of my mind because of this difficult period and the hardships. We wanted to acquire new artists and mm -hmm. uh, we gave the opportunity to a curator who's behind a lot of young Italian artists. He has a prize called Premio Fabri and he shows the artists selected for the prize and then eventually there's a winner and that takes place uh, near Padova. Padova is not too far from Venice. Mm -hmm. So one of our artists put us in touch with him and within a month we came together with seven names, some we knew about, some we discovered, some we Skyped with. The show of seven young artists is called Experimental Photography, or at least to give it a title. Mm -hmm. Not only just an artist going to see a beautiful place in Italy, it's very much concept behind it. They all have pretty much of a catalog. They all have some kind of exposure in institutions, but hardly any had much gallery exposure. Oh, so okay. we just opened a few weeks ago. We're going to take part of the show to a fair in Torino now in June. Huh? Mm -hmm. And getting to know these artists is also um, rewarding. We sold so far a little, but we just opened basically. But you were asking me, how do I acquire new artists? Uh, of course, like you did, we get lots of portfolios that are sent to yeah. us or referred to us. But at the end of the day, because there was a curator behind it. Mm -hmm. Had you worked with curators much before? Or this was one of the first times? This is, to be honest, the first time. Yeah, Again, as in Berlin, it takes time to get people to know you and meet them. Yeah. We had worked with another curator, it's true. Or this curator had written a text a about text, a show. Yeah, yeah. But his first time a curator was commissioned. And then there's another interesting institution for you to talk about called Camera. It's in Torino. Mm -hmm. And it's like a private state-sponsored, to an extent, museum space for photography. They have big blockbuster shows. Now they have Lisette Model and Horst. But they also have project rooms with young artists. And we're going to have a show in collaboration with them now later in May. So that's another collaboration gallery institution. So basically yeah. we take part in the production costs. So our name is there. And once the show is done, we can take it to the gallery. That's mm -hmm. another way of, you know, in Germany, it's another ball game. All the museums have funds and quantities yeah. of incredible museums of photography. In Italy, it's still uh, just that the money's not there. So a lot of these institutions rely on galleries or private fundings to have the shows of young artists. Part of the rules of the game, so you have to, you know, kind of learn the rules and decide if you want to go by them or not. But yeah. in terms of qualification for the gallery, it's it's good. It's really good. Yeah. It sounds like in the last year you were collaborating a lot. Yeah, it's true. You had a lot of involvement with external curators, with new artists, and now even with different institutes throughout Italy. 
Michael, really I wish, nice. I mean, you're talking to me from Berlin and you're perceiving this. I wish, and I, you know, I know that also locally people are aware of that. That's also true. I don't want to say it's not true, but that's what I always ask my assistant. What kind of feedback do we get from all this incredible communication that we all do, you know, Instagram, yeah. social media? Do we know how many more people mm. come to us or collectors that come to us know Whoever comes to the door that I've never seen before, I always ask them, how did you know about us? So you have a lot of photographers. Yeah. <laughs> Occasionally you have good collectors. But of course, a lot of galleries have been working so hardly on these viewing rooms. And we haven't done too much of that, but we have done a lot of social media. That's true. Oh, so in the last year, you've had to really ramp up your social media. Yeah. Have you still been able to open at all? Like, have you had different measures in Milan for allowing visitors and things like that? Because in Berlin, for example, it started, stopped, started, stopped. Some places were closed yeah. indefinitely. And I think recently we had Gallery Weekend, but it was only by appointment and with a negative corona test. Wow, that bad. Yeah. No, nobody would come. I mean, hardly anybody did come. But mm -hmm. over the weekends on Saturdays, because we're inside a courtyard, we had people come privately. Mm -hmm. We knew they were coming. We all wear masks. We still all wear masks, basically. And as of two weeks ago, I think museums were allowed to open again and galleries too. Oh, nice. So there's restrictions. They say, you know, you come in, but you have to come according to the rules, which is fine. And we had our opening two weeks ago and we had crowds of people coming in, which was a bit scary, but they did come. And we're having an event next week. Uh, we're putting together a bit like a gallery weekend, but it's more four or five galleries of our neighborhood to communicate that they're all going to open the whole day from midday to nine in the evening, so mm -hmm. it's like a circuit, a bit like what we had in, in Linienstrasse and, and Mitte. So yeah, we are beginning to collaborate and open new doors. Yeah. But you know, after what it's been March to May, it's a year and two, three months that basically, apart from having shows and mm -hmm. people coming and going, closing, as you said, last summer we were open, that's true. A year ago in the summer, we were open for quite a few months. And then September, it was locked down again. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I guess in autumn this year, it'll still be possible because, yeah, everything that would have been happening in spring yeah. has been postponed. So yeah. fingers crossed that the fairs will take place later in the year. But you say you got one in June, in summer. Out of the blue, because of regulations in Italy, suddenly seem to have loosened up in Torino. Mm -hmm. It's a great hub for contemporary art. They have wonderful private museums and collections, really, really high level. It's a small fair of perhaps 30 galleries, only photography. Okay. It's a bit of a risk. But on the other hand, you know, Torino is an hour, an hour and a half train or car from Milan. And June is hopefully a good time to start. And since the show is there, of course, it costs money like all fairs, but it's reasonable, let's say. That's going to be our first next step. Yeah. Nice. There was one other thing I thought to ask while we're still talking about Berlin and plans and the future. You published a book recently. <laughs> you tell me I'm about that? Send, I'm sorry I haven't sent you a copy yet. I've been bad because I was I was always hoping to come to Berlin and see my friends and see you, of course. Yeah. Did I send you a PDF of the project? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I saw the PDF of it and I think okay. maybe you'd posted it on social media and I thought, oh, nice that you did a photo book yourself. You know, having spent so much time in Berlin and just like you on, on weekends, Weekends, many times I would just take my little camera that I put in my pocket and be it by underground or a bicycle. I've always had an eye for the human touch, let's say, you know, mm -hmm. street photography, basically, it's what it's called, but just observe people. And it was a wonderful way through lockdown last year to put together these photographs and perhaps conceive them as a book. A graphic designer helped me. And then I didn't have any ambition to publish with a, you know, a publishing house, but then yeah. I thought 150 copies my family, my friends, some colleagues, some artists. And it 
you'll see when you receive it, it's just an incredible insight of the humanity of Berlin, the, the incredible richness and open-mindedness. It's just, at the end of the day, that's what I want to convey, this incredible tolerance and open-mindedness at all levels. A lot of these images just tell you how easy and how normal and how wonderful, warm-hearted Berlin is in welcoming all. It was a way of putting down on paper my Berlin experience. And it ranges from museums, from Jonathan Meze, from the Hoffman Collection, Philharmonie, of course, the Jewish issue, you know, all the mm -hmm. extraordinary institutions that's always very present. So yeah, the, it's Berlin Diary and it's very meaningful to me. It gives a sense of what I achieved there. Also towards my family, because for seven years, basically, I was really having two lives. <laughs> a student life in Berlin <laughs> and an established life in Milan. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the insights of life as a gallerist as shared by Pierre-André Podbilski. I've since received a copy of his book, Berlin, Its Days and Ways. It's a beautiful memento and tribute to the city. I think anyone else who's lived here or spent a significant amount of time in Berlin will certainly be able to relate to the images. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show and that we spoke about in this episode, Podbilski Contemporary are taking part in the fair, again, P-H-A-I-R, the VIP preview is today, the 17th of June. However, general entry is possible from Friday the 18th until Sunday the 20th. I've linked to this and everything else we spoke about in the show notes. However, if there is something that I've failed to reference, you're welcome to get in touch on social media or email, whether it is to ask about this or previous episodes, or even just to say hello. That's all for today. I'm hopefully returning to regular programming from this point forwards, so be sure to follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes of the podcast. Until then, thank you for tuning in. My name is Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.